What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, boy, do I have a fascinating guest. Professor Richard Nisbet of the University of Michigan. This could be the most influential academic that the average person has never heard of. His work has touched on everything um, from psychology to intelligence to childhood and child rearing uh, to pharmaceutical side effects. It, it's just endlessly astonishing uh, who he is, the research he's done, understanding the impact of culture and society on um, just how we think and, and how different, let's just use East versus West as examples, as different parts of the world approach problem solving and societal issues and economics and just endlessly fascinating. He's written a dozen books, the most recent of which uh, is Thinking, a memoir, which was quite fascinating. He, he's one of these people, I, I don't want to say he name dropped because he worked with all these people, but he just so casually works in um, various characters from, you know, the canon of 20th century psychology and economics and, and uh, academia because he was really there as all these things were, were being developed. Um, I mentioned during the interview, Professor David Dunning of, of Dunning-Kruger is the one who said, hey, uh, I work with uh, Richard Nisbet. You should really talk to him. And, and really, what more do you need than that as an introduction? Uh, I wish we had another two hours. The conversation was absolutely fascinating. It's a deep dive into intelligence and thinking and how we get smarter uh, both as uh, individuals and society. Absolutely fascinating. I'm going to stop here and say with no further ado, my conversation with Richard Nisbet. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is Professor Richard Nesbitt. He is the co-director of the Culture and Cognition Program at the University of Michigan, focusing on culture and reasoning and basic cognitive processes. No less than Malcolm Gladwell called him the most influential thinker in my life. And when Professor David Dunning, yes, that Dunning, offered to make an introduction, I jumped at the chance. Professor Richard Nisbet, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you. It's my pleasure to have you. Before we dive in, I just want to give you a little bit about my background because I have no real psychology background. My bias is the world of behavioral finance and cognitive errors, really in the context of investing decisions, especially bad investing decisions. So pardon some of the naivete that I may exhibit in some of my uh, questions, there's like the slightest bit of overlap between what I've 
looked at and, and your whole career, and that's why I found it so interesting. And, and, and let's start with your career. There, there's nothing really in your background growing up in El Paso and in California that suggests an academic career in psychology. What led you to the study of human reasoning and decision-making? Oh, I think it was just lock and key. I mean, that's what I was meant to do. Uh, but I, I learned it very early, fortunately. I read Calvin Hall's Primer of Freudian Psychology, and it was just zap. That's it. That's what I'm going to do. Hmm. Right, right. Interesting. I, I really like the idea that has been talked about, and you, you reference it um, in your book, Thinking, a memoir, which we'll talk about in a, in a few moments, that the human propensity for flawed reasoning was advantageous on the savannah, but it really doesn't serve us well in a modern society. Tell us a little bit about that. Right. Um, well, there's a whole enterprise I'm sure you're aware of in psychology and economics uh, showing uh, that people's reasoning is flawed in many respects. And most of the, many people said, well, that, that can't be. You know, I managed to get through my day pretty well. <clears throat> Uh, that's sometimes uh, self-delusional, but uh, but by and large, it's correct to say we, we're not terrible at reasoning across the boards. It's just that the Industrial Revolution and then in spades, the Information Revolution just changed the nature of what we need to do uh, in, in our reasoning in everyday life. Uh, it gave us data, it gave us uh, uh, numbers, uh, it gave us uh, graphs, it gave us uh, reports from people that we never heard of, uh, we encounter people that we don't know at all. All of this is just com completely unanticipatable uh, from the life of a hunter-gatherer. So uh, the problem is the rug has been pulled out from under us, uh, so we make errors all the time. Quite, quite interesting. Some of the, the research that you've done on cognition is really quite fascinating because it's so challenging to figure out what's actually going on in people's minds. I was kind of intrigued by some of the research that was done on birth order and how that impacts people's career choices and aversion to risk-taking or not. Tell us a little bit, or, or, or even how they embrace riskier sports. Tell, tell us a little bit about birth order and, and how did you figure out that was significant? Well, um, I was my advisor uh, in graduate school at Columbia, Stanley Schachter, uh, studied birth order, and one thing he discovered is that uh, firstborn females are more frightened of the prospect of electric shock than later-born females. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting, because uh, I've always been kind of afraid of getting hurt, and my younger brother was getting hurt all the time uh, when he was a kid. Um, so I sort of filed that away, and then I heard uh, of one of these people who looks at uh, primates, uh, and uh, she studied monkeys, uh, and she just made this offhand observation that when a monkey mother has her first baby, she's all arms and legs and tail to keep it in the tree to keep it from falling 30, down, 30 feet down from the forest uh, canopy. Uh, 
by the time her fourth or fifth kid has come along, <laughs> the kid falls out of the tree. She says, oh, damn, I'm going to have, gonna have, gonna have to pick the thing up. Um, she just So firstborns are protected uh, in a way that laterborns aren't. So I, I said, how can I test this? And I started looking at uh, sports and uh, f- the birth order of people who play dangerous sports versus non-dangerous sports. And it turns out that a later born is about 50% more likely to play a dangerous sport than a firstborn. So, um, and that's, <laughs> I just found out recently, there have been 20 studies since, all supporting that general statistic. And 50% is a giant number. We're usually looking for a couple of percent here or there to identify some difference of, of note. This is clearly not only replicable, but very significant. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's surprisingly strong. I, I, if, if I'd been predicting what I'd find, I'd say, oh, maybe a 10 or 15% edge, but no, it's huge. So another one of your books, Geography of Thought, you put forth the theory, Asians and Westerners have maintained very different systems of thought for thousands of years, and these differences are scientifically measurable. Now, now that's when it was first introduced, was a pretty radical premise, but you had the data to back it up. Tell us a bit about that. Well, it is a radical premise, and um, I... I just happened to have a student a number of years ago from China, a really brilliant guy who's actually now Dean of Social Sciences at Tsinghua University, which is the top university in China. Uh, And after we'd been working together for a while, he said, you know, Dick, you and I think completely differently about a lot of different kinds of things. And I said, well, tell me more. And he, he gave me a version of the following said, you think very analytically, very linearly. When you look at some object or person, you are thinking what are the attributes of that object or person, uh, and you come up with rules, uh, or you, uh, you consult your rules about that kind of object or person to figure out how it's going to react, how it's going to behave. Um, he said, I, as Chinese... Uh, think much more um, uh, holistically. I pay much more attention to the context of everything, objects and people. Uh, I pay attention to relationships. I pay attention to similarities. Uh, And this produces all kinds of different conclusions between you and me looking at the same situation. Now, that's actually, he didn't quite say all of that, but he said stuff that was similar to that in what I just said is a summary of our results. Um, and speaking of big effects, not everything I do gets big effects, I can assure you, but uh, I didn't actually believe him exactly, although I had read a book by Nakamura called Ways of Thinking of Eastern People, so I was prepared for some differences, certainly not the differences as, as large as we found. Uh, my favorite examples of these cognitive differences really have to do with perception more than uh, reasoning, although there are plenty of big differences for reasoning. Uh, we, in one of our studies, and this was done with uh, Takahiko uh, Masuda, uh, uh, we showed underwater scenes uh, 
to Americans and Japanese for 20 seconds. Uh, and then we ask them, what, tell me what you saw. The Americans will say something like, well, I saw three big fish swimming off to the left. Uh, they had one fin on top. They had pink stipples on their bellies. Um, there were rocks and shells on the bottom, and so on. The Japanese nearly always start with the context. They say, I, I saw what looked like a stream. Uh, the water was green. Uh, there were rocks and plants on the bottom. Uh, there were three big fish swimming off to the left. Now, in total, we got 60% more reports about context from the Japanese, from the Americans, than from the Americans. And 100% more observations about relationships, like the frog was on the lily pad. Um, and uh, <clears throat> so uh, it turns out, uh, and, and the, the difference there between number of observations about the context, it's a 60% increase over what Americans do. Uh, and that's done with no loss of information about the central objects. Uh, so they're, and so we wanted to see, well, what are they doing? What Are they looking at this, this thing differently? And the answer is yes, they are. Um, we put a gizmo on their heads um, with a camera back at their eyes so we know where they're looking at every moment. This is done with still photos. Uh, and uh, we show people the photos for 10 or 20 seconds. Um, and um, what we find is that the Americans spend almost all their time looking at the object, the front of it, the back of it, the top of it, the bottom of it, etc. The uh, Japanese... Uh, spend much, much more time on the context, and they're actually constantly looking back and forth between the context and the object. Um, so uh, they, they, they're not just seeing the object and the context, they're seeing relationships between the object uh, and the context. So uh, this is, the, the, the effects are huge for perception, uh, there are some very large effects uh, for cognition as well, which I can tell you about if you're interested. For sure. Uh, so um, one thing that we do, we do very simple studies uh, to make our points. Uh, we show people a picture of a monkey, uh, um, a, 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 no, let's uh, take a better example. We show people a uh, picture of uh, a cow, uh, grass, uh, and, um, and a monkey. Uh, and we say, which two of these pictures go together? Uh, the Americans say, well, the, the monkey and the cow go, to better, go together because they're both animals. The Asians are much more likely to say, well, the cow and the grass go together because the cow eats the grass. So they're seeing relationships automatically that are not so salient to us, uh, and uh, they're paying much more attention to the object. Uh, some of the more consequential differences 
uh, have to do with understanding human behavior. Um, there is uh, an error uh, in reasoning that people make. Um, I wonder how many of your guests have heard of this error. It's called the fundamental attribution error. Sure. Uh, so we tend to uh, attribute uh, the causes of behavior to a person's attributes. Um, that is, um, you know, his personality, his abilities, his attitudes, uh, and we tend to ignore the context. Uh, East Asians are much more likely to pick up on the context and to attribute behavior to the context than we are. Um, and uh, an, an example of this uh, is uh, we do a study where we say, We've asked uh, the, this, this person you're about to hear from, uh, we've asked him to, to please state the case uh, as if you were in a debate uh, for why marijuana should be legalized or some other topic. And so, uh, and we say either this person uh, gave this talk in response to a psychology professor's uh, request in response to a political science uh, assignment uh, or um, uh, in uh, response to a debate coach uh, who said, I want you to give me the pro-argument uh, as if you were in a debate. And people then hear this uh, speech, and now you ask them, uh, what do you suppose this guy actually thinks? Uh, and um, people are hugely influenced by what he's said, even though they know he was chosen randomly to give this particular talk. Now, Asians, East Asians, when I say Asians, I nearly always mean East Asians, Japanese, Chinese, uh, and, uh, uh, and Koreans, uh, but others as well, uh, we um, uh, tell people, uh, well, they've been told that this person uh, was required to give this speech. What do they think? They tell us, Americans tell us, well, he thinks pretty much what he said. Asians don't do this. I don't really know what he thinks because he was assigned to do this by somebody else. And that effect is, is really huge. I mean, we make the error in that situation, a very big error, that they are much less likely to make. They do make the fundamental attribution error also, uh, but it's just not nearly as frequently and not nearly as strong uh, an effect. We're going to talk more about the fundamental attribution error in a little bit, but I have to ask, what is the societal or cultural basis for this difference between looking at things either with or without context and relationships, and how does it manifest itself in in each society? Clearly, there's a different structure uh, in both, and the, the behaviors and economies and everything else are so different. Tell us a little bit about what leads to this and, and then where it goes from there. Uh, well, first of all, I'll point out, as you, as you did earlier, that the differences go back thousands of years. Uh, and um, f 
for, exa- for example, if you look at um, physics beliefs in the West and in the East, um, the <laughs> it turns out <clears throat> Westerners have always tended to have physical beliefs, uh, which uh, were a variety of the fundamental attribution error. They try to explain the behavior of objects purely in terms of properties of the object. So, you know, the object fell because it's heavy. Uh, The Eastern says, well, the object fell because the material supporting it wasn't sufficient uh, to bear the weight. So they understand the relation between the context and uh, and the object. And uh, 2,500 years ago already, uh, Chinese were well aware uh, of uh, the concept of action at a distance. Uh, so they understood uh, the reason for the tides, for example, which was not understood even by Galileo. Uh, he didn't get it right. Uh, and they also had a good concept of magnetism uh, and of acoustics. Uh, so they, uh, they had very accurate lay intuitive physics as compared to Westerners, hmm. now, so that and the and the category and the logic, by the way, uh, apropos of analytic reasoning, uh, logic uh, was the story goes invented by Aristotle because he got sick of hearing lousy arguments in the marketplace <laughs> and the political assembly. Um, so he <clears throat> said, "Okay, can we agree that if your argument has this structure?" It's a lousy argument. <laughs> uh, so uh, logic was formalized very early in the West. It was never very much of an interest in the East, uh, and it was never formalized. And there was only a very brief period in the 3rd century B.C. Uh, when there was any concern with logic at all. And then it bas- basically dropped out uh, of, uh, of uh, the intellectual armaments uh, of the East. So uh, why do we get these perceptual differences and these cognitive differences and also, as a consequence, the social differences? Uh, I believed early on, without much evidence, that it was because of the type of of, uh, economy uh, that uh, East Asians had uh, versus uh, Europeans. Uh, East Asians uh, had a great, especially in China, I mean, terrific circumstances for mass agriculture. Mass agriculture, especially rice culture, demands lots of cooperation from people. So effective action depends on my looking at what you're doing and understanding the relationship between your action and my action and so on. So I'm constantly looking out there and I'm seeing the reasons for behavior. I'm seeing the context that creates them. And just and incidentally, if I'm paying attention out there, uh, I have better understanding of, of physics. Um, so um, then I had a very sharp Turkish student uh, a while back uh, who, oh, and I should say, what what was the situation in Greece? Well, Greece was mountains descending to the sea. Mass agriculture is just not uh, in the cards in that situation. People do make a living by 
trading and fishing and kitchen gardening and so on. Uh, so it's they don't have to pay attention to and then herding, sheep herding, especially goats. Uh, so they don't have to pay attention to other people in order to lead, lead an effective life. Um, so this Turkish student says, well, I, I, I know an interesting town in Turkey uh, where there are three major occupations, uh, farmers, fishers, and herders. Now, if you guys are right about uh, why uh, people think holistically in the East and analytically in the West, uh, then we ought to find that the farmers and the fishers think more holistically than the herders. And that turns out to be true. So the herder sees uh, the, the, the monkey and the cow as being related, and the, and the farmers and the fishers see the cow and the grass uh, to be uh, related. To, to be, and uh, so then the really beautiful study on this was uh, a former student of mine uh, looked at uh, reasoning in China, saying, well, people ought to be more holistic in South China than in North China because uh, you make your living historically in the South by rice farming, which is extremely social dependent. I mean, you can't do anything without lots of people cooperating. And it's wheat farming in the North of China, which is much less dependent on other people. Sure enough, people reason more holistically in the south of China than in the north of China. Hmm. So quite a very long answer to your question. <laughs> no, but it's quite fascinating. Some of the things I found in the book were really fascinating and curious, and uh, there's a thread that runs through all of this uh, that that is just intriguing. I want to start with something that I thought was an urban legend, but you present it very differently. One of the few factors that predicts success as a scientist is the amount of time in childhood that person is sick. So explain that. Well, my theory about that is, uh, I mean, who knows? It, it's a fact. Um, we don't really know why. But my theory is that if you're sick, you spend a lot of time in bed by yourself, and there's not much to do. This is pre-TV. <laughs> There's not much to do but read and think, uh, and uh, this is going to stand you in good stead uh, for certain kinds of occupations. Uh, actually, I think most occupations. Um, so uh, then the reason that's in my book, uh, other than the fact that it's sort of an interesting tidbit, uh, is that I spent a huge amount of time alone wandering the the uh, area of El Paso, Texas, which is right across the border from Juarez. And uh, it, was a, it was a wonderful place to wander around. I would go down to the Rio Grande. I would go to the irrigation canals and look at the cat, catfish and the crayfish. Uh, there was a, um, a, a kind of motel for uh, Mexican farm workers um, that I would... Uh, go down and visit those folks, usually taking a, a bunch of Walt Disney comics, which I had paid 10 cents for, and I charged them 5 cents. Uh, or, and I, much later I realized this is a, a Pareto-improving exchange. <laughs> right. 
I got some money, which for my comics, and they got their comics cheaper than they would have had to pay for them in the store. Um, so it was, it was I, I wandered around a lot, so I was thinking a lot, and I was a, something of an isolate. There were not other kids in my neighborhood, so I did a lot of reading. So these huh. days that wouldn't happen. You'd be doing, uh, looking at uh, Instagram or um playing video games. Right. There's no downtime and there's potential negative ramifications for that. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. So right. so let's talk about some of your other research that, that is somewhat intriguing. Mm-hmm. Telling people about drug side effects has no impact on them, and this eventually leads to regulation about all the drug disclosures we see on pharmaceuticals and TV ads for different drugs. You're credited or blamed, or at least your research is credited or blamed, for those disclosures. T- tell us how you uh, came to that conclusion. Well, um, I, very early on, I did a study where uh, I asked people to take a series of electric shocks of increasing intensity. And I asked them to tell, when can you first feel it? When does it first become painful? And when is it too painful to bear? By the way, a lot of people say, well, I would never, I would walk out of the room. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> Everybody, they try to be cooperative. I, mean, I, 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 I present it as a reasonable thing for them to be doing for science, and people will do it. Um, but for some of these people, I say, I want you to take this pill. It's called Suproxen, uh, and um, it will cause your heart to race a bit. It will make your breathing heavier and more irregular. You may find that your palms are a little bit sweaty. You may get a, a tightness feeling in your stomach. These are the symptoms people experience when you're giving them electric shock. Right. <laughs> They're the arousal symptoms that just come with the territory. Other people, we say it'll just give them a few junk symptoms. It'll cause a headache and some itching. Uh, and sure enough, and this is, uh, for some reason you're asking me about things, all the, all the big effect studies I've ever done, an enormous effect. The people who've been told that the arousal will accompany the drug uh, take four times the amperage of other people. Uh, and by the way, and this gets opens up a line of work which we may want to talk about later, the reasoning here is completely unconscious. You, you you ask people, you know, tell me what did you think about the drug while you were taking the shock, and they say, oh, I wasn't thinking about the drug at all. No, oh, yes, they were. And what they were thinking was, I, they're getting more and more aroused uh, as this thing. That, sure enough, their heart rate, their breathing patterns, and so on are changing, just like we said they would. They attribute the arousal, which Otherwise, would be multiplying the pain, the pain experience. Uh, they're treating as, as an external, external thing. It has nothing to do with, you know, my 
thoughts or emotions or uh, uh, anything else. It's just it's just that drug that caused those symptoms. Um, and uh, I did one other study uh, which showed a therapeutic outcome for this kind of thing. Uh, I advertised for insomniacs. Uh, this was done at Yale uh, with Yale students uh, for a study on, uh, on dreams, allegedly. Um, so I found out how long it took them to get to sleep the previous two nights before they come into the lab. Uh, and uh, I tell them, for the next two nights, I want you to take this pill before you go to sleep, and it's an arousal pill. Uh, it's it's going to cause, you know, this will, you may become, uh, your breathing may, be, may become irregular, your heart rate may become uh, faster, etc. All the arousal symptoms, other people we say nothing to about the effects of this pill, or we actually say it will reduce their arousal symptoms. And our anticipation was, I mean, here, this is based on my, myself as an insomniac. I used to, you know, lie in bed and, you know, thinking about the day and the future and there were things I was concerned about and I'd start thinking about them, and I'd get kind of worked up, and so I was saying, you know, I'm getting aroused at bed time, that's a very bad idea. So we anticipated and found that the people that we had given the arousal instructions to uh, got to sleep more quickly the nights that they uh, took the pill. The people that we said uh, the uh, pill will... Uh, will uh, reduce your arousal, took longer to get to sleep. Huh. Uh, because we're thinking, you know, the, the, the arousal that they experience uh, because of they're worried about the situation with their girlfriend or the hour exam tomorrow, whatever, um, though the arousal that occurs as a result of these, uh, these scary, unpleasant thoughts, uh, they, uh, they'll, they'll say, well, it must be particularly bad tonight because I've got this pill that's supposed to calm me down. And by the way, that was based on a personal experience as well. I, I, after I had insomnia for quite a while as an undergraduate, I said, okay, I'm going to give up. I'm going to take a sleeping drug. And I took a Somonex and lay in bed waiting for it to take effect, <laughs> which it never did. And it took me longer to get to sleep because... I said, well, I, this this ought to get rid of the, those arousal uh, symptoms that I have, and it didn't. So years later, somebody said, well, Somonex is practically useless, so <laughs> uh, it was never going to have an effect. So, so, so what's uh, the relationship? People taken the pill mm -hmm. uh, at bedtime and think it will reduce arousal, it takes them longer to get to sleep because... Uh, they they think, look, I've got as, at least as much arousal as usual, and even though I've got a pill in me. So uh, the general point made by those two studies is that uh, you can have uh, the effects uh, of a pill uh, that, uh, that 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 aren't really there. Their, their arousal is not being produced by that pill or reduced by that pill, uh, but by 
uh, other experiences. Um, so this work got uh, picked up uh, by the uh, uh, FDA uh, because uh, drug companies did not want to tell people about the side effects that they might have from the drug uh, because they said, well, the power of suggestion. We're psychologists here, and we know that the power of suggestion is such that people are going to be experiencing these things that uh, they're not really uh, have anything to do with the pill, but they're going to attribute, they're going to, uh, they'll, they'll, in, they'll invent these effects. They'll start having these effects if you tell them about it because via the power of suggestion. So, uh, so let me but, jump in here and ask a quick question. What's the relationship between the expected phys- physiological arousal in this external source and what I think lay people think of as the placebo effect? Well, uh, the placebo effect is, in fact, uh, you get certain symptoms, uh, certain experiences, uh, and if you've been given uh, what is actually a placebo uh, and told that it will improve your condition, the pain or flu symptoms or whatever, people will, in fact, uh, often experience those things or think that they're experiencing those things. So there is definitely a phenomenon of the placebo effect, but in a way, this is the opposite uh, of the effect. I mean, this pill is not causing any any, uh, symptoms of any kind, but they they think uh, that the pill is, is causing certain uh, symptoms. So, uh, but it very much depends on the symptoms. If it's arousal symptoms, uh, they will attribute any naturally occurring arousal to the pill. Uh, and uh, if it's uh, decreasing arousal symptoms, they'll attribute any arousal uh, to their own state, to their actual state, uh, which they will assume is worse. Uh, than they might have thought. So you can read into people's experiences uh, arousal that's due to some external source, or you can read it out. Uh, so, so the FDA requires that all possible side effects be reported. Um, you mentioned David Dunning uh, earlier. Mm-hmm. You've had on your program, uh, and he's done a, a fascinating study showing that. Um, People who have been, uh, uh, well, just a second, let me let me make sure I get the, the story right about what he's finding. Yeah, uh, Dunning has found that uh, people are less likely to pay attention to side effects if you list 27 side effects, you know, like the TV ads where they, and this may call you, blah, 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 blah. The more symptoms you give them, the less attention they pay to any of them and the less likely they are to remember it later. If you just tell them a few of the very most important ones, they're likely to retain that information. Um, so, you know, uh, psychology has a lot to do with what drug effects are and what drug side effects are and what people attribute the side effects too. 
What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. So, so let's jump to uh, attribution theory. What is the fundamental attribution error in acting versus observing? I'm kind of intrigued in my field that when someone sees a successful investor or trader, um, they tend to say, well, that guy got lucky. But when they themselves are doing pretty good, instead of crediting luck, it's obviously due to their own skill set. How is that related to the attribution theory? Well, in a way, that's almost the the opposite of of the, of oh, the really? fundamental attribution error. The, the fundamental attribution error, I I attribute uh, behavior to a, an attribute of the person, a personality trait or an ability uh, that really should be understood uh, in terms of context uh, or situation. Um, so, um, but. In showing that this is a there's a difference in our the likelihood that we make this error uh, for ourselves versus others. Um, if you uh, uh, show people uh, uh, a, a video of someone behaving in a particular way and ask them why they did it, they'll they'll go for the for the person's attributes, for their traits, instead of paying attention to the context. But if it's they themselves who are doing this, they're, 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 they're responding to a significant extent to the context. So they say they, they attribute the behavior, their own behavior, they're much more likely to attribute it to the context of the situation than they would the same behavior by someone else. Hmm. That that's quite interesting. You you mention uh, an endless array of different, um, very famous psychologists and sociologists that you've worked with over the years. Two of the people you discuss really stand out, and and I have to uh, reference both of them. Um, there's an old joke about Amos Tversky that says, you know, the Amos Tversky IQ test is. The smarter a person is, the sooner they figure out that Tversky is smarter than them. Um, right. uh, is that your line? In, in the book, it seems to suggest you're the person who coined that. Yes, I'm the person who claimed it. It's become, I mean, every psychologist knows that line. For sure. I mean, it's interesting that, you know, the smarter you are, the quicker you realize you're not as smart as someone else. Actually, this is related to a Dunning finding, right? I mean, um, the more knowledgeable people are, the more, the better calibrated they are uh, for uh, uh, for understanding uh, the world. For uh, they understand, they know very little about science, so they tell you, well, "I don't know." You ask me a question, I can't answer. I don't, I don't know enough. More ignorant people will give you an answer uh, because they don't realize they don't have the wherewithal. Metacognition um, as a distinct skill set from actual knowledge of the space. Exactly. Huh. So the smarter somebody is, the, the, the more likely they are to, to 
stand aside and not and not give you an opinion about something if they don't have feel like they 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 have sufficient sufficient knowledge. And and we're going to spend a little more time talking about intelligence and IQ and how malleable and modifiable that is in a moment. But there's a quote uh, you paraphrase of of Hans. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his name right. Hans Selye. Hans. Mm-hmm. That's it. Um, success in a science is a multiplicative function. It's intelligence times education times ambition times curiosity times hard work times the ability to get along with people and not just super high IQs. Explain that. It's quite a fascinating little formula. Right. Well, you have to have all those things to be a successful scientist. And my, my guess is that you have to have pretty much all those things to be a successful to be successful in business. Period, right. Uh, um, and, um, it, I mean, I, I, have, I know someone who uh, had a tested IQ of 184, and he was incredible. I mean, you didn't have to be with him for very long to realize, oh, my God, this guy is really super, super smart. Uh, and, but he was... Um, Slightly autistic. I mean, he, he he was slightly off. He he would make comments that were inappropriate. Uh, he would laugh when that wasn't the right reaction, and so on. Uh, and he had a PhD from a major university, uh, and he only managed to get very middling level jobs, uh, academic jobs in his career. He should have been, you know, at a major university, and he was on very minor places. So that's a case of, you know, that, that the particular thing that he lacked uh, was uh, ability to get along with people. But uh, ambition is another thing that you often see. If somebody has he's got the whole package, but it just doesn't care enough to, to, to put it all into, into play. Uh, there's a quote that makes this point, by the way, which I really love, from Warren Buffett, uh, who says, you know, investing is not a game where uh, the smartest guy wins. Uh, if you've got an IQ of 160, you may as well sell 30 of those points because you're not going to need them. <laughs> and there's there's a lot to that. You know, it's not just raw processing power. It's judgment and decision-making and the ability to see context, and a, a lot of those things aren't necessarily IQ. They're, they're a different form of intelligence, which kind of goes to, and I don't want to give the game away because we'll talk about this in a moment, but it kind of goes to the concept that there are a lot of different ways to improve intelligence and improve um, how successful a person can be and you point out in the book that the average IQ score in developed Western economies has risen over the past century. Tell us a little bit right. about that. Right. Well, it, it actually probably started with the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, suddenly you have a workforce that, that needs to be able to read and write and do arithmetic. <clears throat> so you start in, increasing the amount of schooling introducing it, or if it's already there, sort of, in embryo, you enhance the education. Uh, And for the last 200 years, the amount of time 
that people spend in school has just kept on increasing. Uh, and uh, it, this is hard to believe, but right after World War II, only about 6 or 8% of the population had a college degree. Uh, and college does make you smarter. And by the way, I, I have data about that if you want to hear about that. Sure. To my surprise, I really didn't. <laughs> I just thought, you know, college teaches you stuff. I didn't realize it actually makes you smarter in lots of very important ways. Well, it, it, it does both, right? It teaches you things, but it also gives you a framework to think about things. It's more than just, here's a list of data points, memorize them. It's, here's how to think. Here's a set of cognitive rules and mental models that you can use to solve problems. Exactly. Um, so um, the, an example uh, that I like is uh, I have lots of, lots of my studies and lots of Tversky and Kahneman studies, by the way, um, had to do with showing the errors in reasoning that people make because they don't think statistically or probabilistically mm -hmm. <clears throat> when they should. I mean, it's a, the, these habits of thought are not, they're not common. We don't, we don't, we're not typically taught them in such a way that they can make contact with everyday life events. Um, for example, they're, one of their most famous studies uh, is you say, there's a town uh, where there are two hospitals. One has about 15 births per day, and the other has about 60 births per day. At which of these hospitals do you think there would be more days in the year when 60% or more of the births were boys? Most people say, oh, it shouldn't make any difference. Uh, and about as many say it would be the larger hospital as would be the smaller hospital. In fact, it's astronomically more likely to happen at the smaller, the smaller one, right? 15 births. Today. Right. You're more likely to get a random outcome with a smaller data set than you are with a larger data set, four times larger right. data set. Right. I mean, you're going to go far away from 50% if there's three births uh, per day right. <laughs> because uh, the, it's going to be either two-thirds, uh, zero, 100%, or right. three-thirds boys. <laughs> I mean, that's... Um, so, uh, so that's a case. We understand the law of large numbers, by the way. Uh, even, you know, hunter-gatherers understood the law of large numbers in a lot of important contexts. But we don't have it stored away as an abstract rule to, to any time there's a little light that goes on in our heads to say, oh, data, uh, oh, yeah, what's the N? What's the number of cases? My favorite example of somebody not using the law of large numbers uh, and not understanding that the more variable uh, the dimension you're looking at, uh, the more data it's important to have to make a judgment. And this comes from when I went for the first time to Europe. I spent about uh, a week in London, a week or 10 days, and it was absolutely gorgeous weather. I mean, blue sky, 70 degrees every single day. And I came away sort of with a lingering feeling that, you know, the British are such complainers. They actually have wonderful <laughs> weather, but they're always complaining about the rain. Right. Well, I, I got uh, what I deserved. The next time I went to London, it never stopped raining <laughs> the entire time. So <clears throat> now I, I wasn't so foolish as to think that weather isn't as variable 
in England as it is anywhere else, but I just didn't take the trouble to say, wait a minute, how much evidence do I really have about what the weather is? Uh, so, at any rate, uh, I studied people's failure to apply the law of large numbers when they should. They're attributing causality when the data they have is purely correlational. I studied their uh, inability to apply uh, the regression, statistical regression concept uh, to problems, and so on. And uh, when I was doing that work, I used to say, you know, not only are we stupid, but you can't make us smarter with these things. So one day I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to prove that. I mean, I don't actually know for a fact that, you know, you can't teach people these things. To my astonishment, in 15 or 20 minutes, you can teach the law of large numbers, mm -hmm. the regression principle, uh, the cost-benefit cost uh, principles, including a crucially important one of... Uh, uh, of uh, of the uh, sunk cost uh, mm -hmm. principle uh, that um, I can't retrieve money I've already spent by consuming something. So, you know, I, I go to a movie and it's a lousy movie. You know, I may say, well, I don't want, this thing is hardly worth it. I'd just as soon be sitting at home. But, you know, I don't want to waste the money I paid, you know, which an economist says, honk, wrong. <laughs> you can't waste that money. You already wasted it. Uh, all you can do now is, is uh, send uh, good money after bad. Uh, you talk um, about this with books, and, and I had this experience uh, more or less around the same time you did, the realization that, hey, I'm not liking this book. I'm under no obligation to finish it. It's not homework. I didn't sign a contract. If I'm not enjoying it, put it aside. I, I know people who have a real emotional difficulty in saying, no, no, I started it. I have to finish it. Oh, I, I was absolutely you know, pathological. I mean, if I started, by God, I was going to finish it. Uh, and, and I don't know who told me that that's a good rule. <laughs> I guess I just invented it myself. But, of course, it's a perfectly terrible rule. Uh, at whatever point you're not enjoying or you're not learning, then you should stop. Uh, people don't have that principle uh, at such a level of abstraction that it will make contact with all the problems in life that it should. So, uh, so, but I, you teach them in, in the laboratory just a very few problems using one of these principles, or actually just giving them the abstract principles. And uh, either either one will help people. And if you give them both abstract and concrete cases, of course, uh, they do even better. So I decided to say, well, what what does college do for you uh, on these things? Mm -hmm. And I gave them in a package of problems like the 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 um, that are solvable by using the sunk cost rule or the law of large numbers or the concept of statistical regression, which is that. Uh, extreme events uh, are not likely to be so extreme the next time they're encountered. We don't have that wired into us. I mean, it, it's a, a tremendously important principle that we, you know, it just it doesn't come with the, with the hardware. Right. Uh, you or the software, for that matter. What, what's that? 
or the software. It doesn't come with the no, software. No, not even the what, software. What, when in, in uh, a few million years of evolution would we have ever experienced things like exponential growth or compounding? If it never comes up, it's just a total blind spot to us until we're walked through. Right. Exactly. Although that said, I've watched people get the the Monty Hall problem explained to them. The, you know, do do you do you stay with your original choice of the three doors, or once a door is revealed, do you switch? Even after you lay out the statistics to people, a lot of people still refuse to accept that the odds have changed and you should switch. Right. So. We looked at all of these kinds of things, and uh, I mean, they, they were just uh, simple problems like I've just been talking about. Or you tell people, uh, you know, at the end of uh, uh, the first couple of weeks uh, of the baseball season, there are usually several batters with averages of 450 or higher, but no one ever finishes the season with that high an average. Why do you suppose that is? <clears throat> Now, if you ask this question of a U of M freshman before he set foot in the classroom, he will say, and I'm making it he because he's more likely to know about baseball, uh, he will say, well, you know, the pitchers make the necessary adjustments or, uh, <laughs> you know, they, they, they're doing so well they kind of goof off and stop trying as hard. After uh, – an education lasting four years at the University of Michigan, they're like, they say, well, wait a minute. <laughs> Early on in the season, there haven't been that many at-bats. Right. If you think about it, uh, after your first at-bat, your, your uh, average is either zero or one. Uh, so when you get more and more, but nobody really has a 450 level of ability, and that's going to show over the long haul. So, I mean, it goes from like, 10% giving you that kind of answer to 60 or 70% giving wow. you that kind of answer. I mean, college is hugely important for making you smarter. Uh, Peter Thiel, to the contrary, notwithstanding. Uh, and uh, so this was, I was bowled over by this. I couldn't, again, I, it's a tremendously strong effect. I mean, it's people go on average from answering 20% of our problems correctly to 70% of our problems correctly. None of these things that, you know, the statistical rules, probabilistic rules, economic rules, psychological rules, none of these things uh, are taught explicitly nearly as much as they should be. <clears throat> I went and got, after I did the study, I went and got a couple of econ econ economics texts uh, to see what they did with the sunk cost. And both of them, they, they spoke of it only in business situations. Uh, they didn't say, oh, by the way, this principle <laughs> is important to you every day um, in many, many ways, or the opportunity cost principle. They're, just, they're, not, they're not, they make no effort. And statistics courses make no effort to say, look, statistics is relevant, you know, all the time and probability and so on. Hmm. So there are opportunities to do uh, to greatly improve people's education. Won't affect their IQ, but it sure as heck makes them smarter. Uh, and it's tragic that these things are rarely taught. Certainly not in the way of 
that will make contact with everyday life events in high school. Instead, we make high school students take algebra, which they're not going to use. I mean, a tiny fraction are ever going to use algebra. Uh, and tragically, a lot of people uh, drop out of high school because they can't hack uh, algebra. Well, algebra ought to go out of the curriculum, as far as I'm concerned, and uh, and put probability, economics, and statistics in. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a, a fabulous suggestion. Last question in this segment on thinking. You've now been at the University of Michigan for quite a long while. Uh, tell us about how you came to leave Yale and end up at Michigan. Right. Uh, well, my story there appalls most people <laughs> who hear it. That's why uh, I asked. Uh, so I, I was at Yale, perfectly good university, and I went to Michigan, despite the fact that the, the day of my interview, it was in February. Ann Arbor is not a lovely place in February, it may surprise you to know. <laughs> and this was a particularly unlovely day because there was dirty, patchy snow lying all around. It was very cold. Um, and uh, I had was interviewed by the executive committee of the department, and uh, they most of the time in the discussion was spent with them discussing baseball, which I know nothing about and isn't really relevant to my career. Uh, and I spent the bulk of my time, well, not the bulk, but the single the single person I spent most time with is a colossal bore. But I went to the University of Michigan anyway. In fact, I made up my mind I would go to the University of Michigan absolutely regardless of what happened on uh, when I was there, because I had heard only good things about the university, about the psychology department, about the town, etc. Uh, I'm going to improve my uh, life in all of these ways, and I'm not going to pay any attention to the concrete data which I get. And that's a huge bias that we have, you know. If 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 I saw it, it must be real. Well, no, <laughs> it might not be. Uh, you have better ways of finding out what an object is like than examining it yourself. Now, that's what we have speech for <laughs> and the ability to read. We can, can, can get uh, information rather than relying on our own senses. And it was, in fact, uh, <laughs> the absolute right decision for me. Uh, so I got what I deserved. Huh. Quite, quite interesting. Let's talk a little bit about some of the impact of your research on geography of thought. I'm kind of intrigued by the conclusion that we focus way too much on genetics and we really should be paying a whole lot more attention to the environment, the culture, and the society. Tell us a little bit about that. Right. Well, um, I had studied reasoning for many, many years. And if you're a psychologist, you sort of keep up on the literature on many fields, and one of them most psychologists know something about is intelligence. <clears throat> but for some reason, I got to thinking seriously about the intelligence literature, and the more I thought and the more I read, the more I realized that psychologists had gotten things desperately wrong uh, with intelligence. And uh, there's a book that has all these desperately wrong things in it. It's called The Bell Curve, and most of your <laughs> listeners believe 
what the bell curve tells them. They believe that uh, genetics uh, is, uh, accounts for um, 60 to 80 percent of the variation that you find in intelligence. Uh, they think that early childhood environment is not all that important, unless it's their own kid, and they've got to get, they're desperate to get him in the very best uh, daycare situation, which is uh, a mistake. Uh, they uh, um, they uh, underestimate uh, the lifetime learning opportunities that make us uh, much smarter or not, as the case may be. Uh, they think that uh, blacks and whites uh, have, uh, are separated in their IQ scores on the average by 15 points. They think, well, probably, maybe some of that's genetic. Uh, they think Asians uh, have higher IQs uh, than, uh, than, than your people of European descent. Um, and so on. And all of that is wrong. Um, and, <laughs> uh, and I wrote a book called Intelligence and How to Get It, uh, which shows what's wrong with all of that. Uh, the, the arguments are pretty complicated in the case of, uh, for example, how much of IQ is due to your genes. Um, the most interesting thing I can say about it First of all, it's, it's, I don't know what the contribution of genes is. I know it's less than 60, way less than 80% of, of the variation. Uh, and the most interesting and important thing I can say about genes and intelligence is that the, uh, the contribution to the IQ of a population of upper-middle-class people only is about 80%. It is huge. There, there, the variation that you see between, you know, between people who were raised in upper middle class environments is largely variation that's produced by their genes. In this country, uh, the contribution to IQ of genes of the lower class is practically zero. Now, hmm. how could that possibly be? Well. Because upper middle class families are all alike, uh, they're like happy families. Right. <laughs> uh, the happy families are all alike. Upper middle class families are all alike with respect to cognitive skill. They're, they're, they're very good, and there's not that much variation. I mean, lawyer Smith and businesswoman Jones, their kids are all getting essentially the same environment with respect to cognitive. Training. So wait, let me interrupt you here. So when you say the same environment, they they read, their parents pay attention to them, they go to exactly. even a decent school, and so everybody who has that similar upper middle class or even middle class background is going to take the most advantage of their own genetic background. But working exactly. class students, you're suggesting get almost none of that. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. 
Yeah, because of the chaos that you find uh, in in many of those families. Uh, and this has and nothing the, to do with race. This has nothing to do with religion. This is right. really everybody just scrapping really hard to make ends meet. And it, it right. it's not the ideal circumstance for uh, raising a, a child. Right. And, you know, some environments, obviously lower class environments, are as good as you would ever find in an upper middle class. <clears throat> but a, some of the environments are, are chaotic, chaotic in the extreme. Uh, and not much goes on that's going to facilitate uh, somebody rising to their level uh, of ability. Um, and when the environment is massively different across uh, individuals, as it is in the lower classes, then uh, it's the environment that's going to drive the bus, and the genes are not really much relevant. Mm-hmm. A little side point that I'll make here, uh, and this is that this is true uh, only in the U.S. among rich countries. Oh, really? In uh, Scandinavia especially, <clears throat> the contribution of genes to IQ is just as great for the lower classes, people with the least money as it is the most money, because they are, they are making sure that the poorest have good things going on in their environment, schooling and so on, so that, uh, so that genes <clears throat> can express themselves. Uh, in the lower classes in in Europe, especially Scandinavia. Um, so, um, so that's that's the most interesting thing I can say about genes and the environment. Um, well, let's and, stay with this a sec because you really raise two fascinating questions, and I, I'm going to assume you answered it in intelligence and how to get it. The first is. What should parents of any economic background be doing to help their children become as uh, intelligent and successful as possible? And then the bigger question is, what should the U.S. as a society be doing? Yeah, uh, right. Uh, Great questions. Uh, There is wonderful anthropological work that's gone on looking at where you just live with a family for a few weeks or months and see what goes on. Uh, In the upper-middle-class family, uh, they typically eat dinner together, and Mm -hmm. the dinner table conversation is kind of like a tennis game. I mean, dad says something, and mom says something, and the kid says something, and the dad responds to what the kid said, and so on. They learn how to think. Uh, to a significant extent, in family gatherings, these kids get hmm. taken to the museum. They they get read to uh, often by quite good books. Uh, in the uh, lower class family, and and this is intact. I mean, we're not talking about pathological. I mean, it's you know, dad's dad's a lunch pail dad, and and uh, and mom's a, a homemaker. Uh, intact family, uh, there isn't much in the way of conversation with the kid. You tell the kid what to do, and the kid asks you for something, and that it's just not at all the same thing. Uh, there often is some reading uh, in the lower-class family. You know, there may be some little golden books. I don't know if they still have those, but mm-hmm. when the 
that most of this research was initially done, that, uh, those were common. Um, and the kid may get read to some. <clears throat> uh, and they don't tend to go to museums. Uh, they don't have their information, their their fiction uh, of the top level, most interesting, most likely to uh, be food for thought. So uh, there is a huge difference between upper and lower class in cognitive skills. Some of that is undoubtedly genetic. I have no idea what fraction, uh, but we know most of it is environmental. And this comes from studies uh, of adoption. Uh, hmm. What happens to a kid from a lower class who gets adopted into a middle class family as compared to the kid who stays in the family of origin? And the answer is that's worth 12 to 18 points in IQ. I mean, that's enormous. That's the difference between somebody who might or might not graduate from high school versus someone that you would expect with complete college and might well go on to postgraduate work. Um, so, uh, and that's, that shows how important the environment is. And that's, that's the end of the question. <laughs> so so what, should, what should a country like the United States be doing if we have the goal of, hey, we want to see more of our kids succeed, we want to level the playing field and make sure everybody has the opportunity to, to do their best, what is Scandinavia doing that we're not? What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Well, first of all, they have they have daycare from, I don't know, the word go. Um, and uh, daycare is it's important I mean a good daycare program is important for intelligence for sure with respect to specifically IQ uh, the very best uh, daycare programs that we have may have an early effect that tends to largely fade on IQ um, but uh, the Nobel Prize winning economist uh, Heckman at uh, University of Chicago has summarized the evidence of what happens to these kids 30 years after they either have daycare or don't. And the difference is, <laughs> I seem to be only telling you about really big effects today. Yeah. Well. I mean, it's like a 50% increase in the likelihood that the kid will graduate from high school, a 50% like increase in the likelihood that he'll go to college, uh, having, cutting in half of the likelihood that the kid is going to go to jail or be a public charge. I mean, stuff is being learned in there about de dealing with other people and self-control cooperation and so on that are tremendously, they're not, not IQ, uh, but they're cognitive skills and social skills uh, with a huge payoff. And by the way, the economists have shown that good daycare uh, pays back uh, 
in a ratio of nine to one. Wow. That is nine dollars gained for every one dollar spent on daycare. The, the the gain to the treasury is significant uh, over the lifetime of a kid. So, I mean, it's just so important uh, that early childhood education and there and to the policy thing, of course, in the the uh, Democrats, um, three point five trillion uh, hope. <clears throat> uh, there is early childhood care for everybody. That. Mm. That's a huge investment. I mean, it's a hugely valuable investment, not to mention the human suffering and and and, uh, and human well-being that are involved. Hmm. Quite quite intriguing. I want to talk about some of the things you've discussed about the state of of psychological research and academic research in general. Uh, most importantly, with the reproduction problem, tell us what's happening um, in, in the ability to reproduce uh, academic research. Right. Well, this is a matter of some passion for me, as you might imagine. <clears throat> Several years ago, uh, a psychologist named Brian Nozick and a lot of other psychologists <clears throat> published an article in Science claiming that only 50% of the psychology experiments that they attempted to replicate actually did replicate. Um, by the way, even if that were true, which it, it isn't, um, <clears throat> it would be better than what the drug companies do. Uh, their re- replication rate is significantly lower than, than 50%. But... <clears throat> The, the research was deeply flawed in many ways. For one thing, uh, a lot of the studies were chosen because someone found the results to be implausible. <laughs> so only 50% of the on-their-face-of-it implausible research uh, got reproduced would be the way to describe what they did. But they, uh, they did a lot of things that were... Uh, astonishingly far from what the original investigators did. Uh, Italians were asked opinions about African Americans. Well, they don't have the same understanding of African Americans in Italy that we do. Uh, people uh, are asked uh, uh, <clears throat> how they would feel about you know flubbing a question in college class, and but people who uh, and replicating this by somebody who makes an, an error uh, in business, it's quite a different kind of thing. Uh, and uh, if, you, if you improve on this situation, you'll get about 80% uh, of people, uh, of 80% of studies replicating. <clears throat> Just simply asking the investigator of the study, say, look, this is our understanding of what you did, uh, is that right? And they either say, yeah, go ahead, or no, you're missing something there. Mm-hmm. Uh, just that gets it up to 80%. Wow. Uh, but in fact, uh, there was. it's extremely misleading to talk about the replicability of randomly selected studies, let alone the replicability of implausible-seeming studies, uh, because uh, I've asked, I started asking people after this came out, uh, can you think of any 
finding in psychology, which seemed interesting and important when it came out, uh, that then turns out not to be the case and doesn't replicate. Um, and uh, people have to think for a while. I've only got a list of about a half dozen studies like that at this point. <clears throat> so that's enough to tell you we don't have a replicability problem. It's a certain class, you know, run-of-the-mill studies or... Uh, but if studies, you know, have been vetted uh, appropriately, uh, there's there's a very low rate of, of misinformation uh, getting into the system. And, and you're talking about actual lab studies, not things like Freud's abstract theory of the id subsequently being replaced by a different thesis of psychology. You're talking about actual experimental psychology. Let me give you an example. Uh, it's uh, one thing that we haven't gotten onto is how incredibly much we are affected by small situational or con- contextual things in our lives uh, that we're in, uh, affected unconsciously. One a clever study, you have people hold uh, a pencil in their mouth with the end of the pencil pointing in, which gives you kind of a sourpuss look mm-hmm. and feel when you do that, uh, or you have them hold it between their teeth uh, horizontal to the floor, uh, which makes it makes you feel like you're smiling. And you have people look at cartoons uh, under one of these conditions or the other, and sure enough, people who have been forced to smile uh, think the cartoons are funnier. Mm-hmm. So then there's like 10 or 20 studies rep- attempting to replicate that effect, and they don't find it. So that study just drops out. People stop referring to this. It doesn't work. It turns out that all of the studies that attempted to replicate this have a video camera on the person. Very, The person knows that he's being watched. The whole point about this thing <laughs> is that you're unaware in a conscious way of the fact that you're Facial expression has been manipulated, and that's what allows the effect to occur. So sure enough, when you do it with the video camera, you don't get the effect. When you do it without the video camera, you do get the effect. Um, So so the the work is, is really very bad. On the other hand, I will say that that article started a movement to look at the practices of psychologists, research practices, and uh, there have been a number of improvements. Uh, uh, You're more likely, going back to the law of large numbers, you're more likely to get a spurious result if you use a small number of subjects. Sure. uh, Because you you may uh, get something happening that isn't very likely to happen. You just used a small enough sample that you get it. I went back and looked at some of the studies early in my career, and I was appalled <laughs> at how few subjects I used, uh, including uh, the studies that I mentioned about uh, externalizing uh, arousal effects. I mean, we uh-huh. had you know, ends of 12 uh, per cell, and it's just, just it's inappropriate. Uh, and I, over time, I, like everybody else, drifted to much larger numbers of cases than that. Um, but now no one would ever use ends as low as most of us used, at least some of the time, decades ago. 
Uh, and there are, there are other practices, too, some good, some not so good. But huh. the ones that are good, they're, they're valuable. They have changed people's behavior. So, so speaking of doing experiments, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by things like introspective reports where people are verbally describing what they're thinking about, how they're thinking, and, and, and you kind of reach the conclusion that these sorts of things... Uh, at best, people can explain what they think they're thinking about, but not really how they actually think. Uh, tell us a bit about that. Right. Well, uh, some of my favorite studies here about showing that we don't know what's going on in our heads. One beautiful one shows people a matrix of four cells, uh, up, down, right, left, and it tells the subject, I'm going to put an X uh, on the computer screen in one of those uh, <coughs> quadrants. And uh, I want you to predict where it's going to appear. So early on, the subject does terribly, and he gets better and better uh, as time goes on. That's because there are rules that are determining where that X appears. It never appears in the same quadrant twice, uh, it has to appear in quadrant two uh, before uh, it can uh, appear in quadrant four, etc. Complicated rule system. Uh, and we know that people have learned the rules because when you change the rules, they fall back down to chance level. <clears throat> now, you ask the subject, you say, tell me, you, you, do it, you were doing so great there, and then it kind of, you know, honestly, say you kind of fell apart what, what happened and i said well you know, i just i just lost the rhythm uh <laughs> you had psychology uh sub professors uh as some of the subjects and one of them said well i i think you were showing me distracting symbols uh subliminally so here are people learning rules uh that are quite complicated uh, and no awareness that they've learned those rules at all. Hmm, quite, um, that's quite interesting. I got, what's that? That's quite interesting. Yeah. So uh, the Nobel Prize winner, economist, uh, organizational psychologist, uh, um, uh, cognitive psychologist Herbert Simon uh, you know, won the Nobel Prize and you know, for a while I was going around saying, I do think aloud protocols. I have people solve problems and they think aloud, and that tells me the process that they're using to solve the problem. And my reaction was, well, no, it, it just says that they can tell you how their theory of how they would have solved the problem, which right. happens to correspond to your theory, but that not, isn't necessarily what's going on. Uh, and uh, these studies established that. And in the, there was a controversy that went back and forth between uh, Simon and me, uh, and uh, he actually gave me a beautiful example of this. He says, you know, when, when people play their first chess game, um, it's uh, uh, they... That they play, they make several moves, and then you ask them why you did that. And they can't tell you. They say, I don't know. I just was moving things randomly. I, I, I don't know why I was doing that. And Simon says, no, actually, 
they were following rules. It's called Duffer's Rules. <laughs> Everybody plays the same way before they really have gotten any expertise at all. So then if they continue to play and they read books and they talk to other chess players, they are now beautifully cognizant of what's going on in their head. They can tell you exactly why they moved the rook to the, the, this position instead of the bishop and so on, and they're quite accurate. Then if you look at chess masters, I mean, world-class players, they're no longer accurate about what, what they're doing because they've forgotten some of the stuff they learned in books in a, in a, in a conscious way. And it's precisely because their masters is that they've invented, they've induced certain rules uh, that they're following, but they're, they're hopeless. An example, an even simpler example is uh, language. We don't know what grammar is. If you try to have people explain English grammar, they're hopeless. <laughs> they're, they, they can't say a single correct thing. Uh, but nevertheless, we rarely violate uh, those rules. We just don't have a conscious grasp on what they are. So we're constantly learning things, inducing things uh, that uh, we're not aware of in a conscious way, uh, solving problems in an unconscious way. Um, and uh, one of my very favorite studies, uh, you have people in a lab, there's two ropes hanging down from the ceiling, there's a bunch of objects lying around on the tables in there, and the experimenter says, I want you to tie the two ropes together, but the problem is they're too short to do that, so you have to find a way. And one way is very obvious, you tie an, uh, an extension cord uh, to one, and you go over and grab the other, and you can now tie them together. And there are a lot of things like that. And after the the subject has been stumped for a while, <clears throat> uh, the experimenter says, uh, uh, okay, uh, so um, uh, they do, it, do it another way, and you still can do nothing. So then he goes, he's been wandering around the, the lab while this is going on, ambling around, he casually puts one of the ropes into motion. Then, typically within 45 seconds, the subject grabs a rope, ties a heavy object like a pair of pliers to it, sets it moving like a pendulum, goes to the other rope, grabs the pendulum rope, and ties them together. And the investigator says, that, that's, very, that's very clever. How did you happen to think of that? And again, this is another one of those studies that use psychology professors as subjects. And one says, well, um, I thought of uh, uh, monkeys uh, swinging through trees uh, across a river. Uh, the imagery occurred simultaneously with the solution. And you say, well, do, do you think it could have influenced you, the fact that I put the rope into motion? Oh, no, 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 no. It's, it's all about monkeys and rivers and swinging and so on. <clears throat> People have no idea why they were able to solve that problem. Now, this is not just a curio. It turns out that the unconscious mind is going on solving problems all the time for free. <laughs> We're not aware of what's going on, but it, it, it's happening, and, and that, that's great. I mean, uh, it's uh, most of the stuff that, uh, that goes on uh, uh, is, is accurate. 
So, um, so that reminds me a little bit of some of the split brain uh, experiments where people who have had their, I guess it's the corpus callosum, severed. So what they see in their right eye goes to the left side of the brain, the left eye goes to the right side, but they're not communicating. And if they're showing shown two different things, two different images in each eye, they're unaware of why they're actually engaging in the sort of behavior they do based on whether something was shown to one side of their brain or the other. Right. Is that related to this? It's a perfect example uh, to bring to this. Those people are confabulating. They, mm -hmm. they don't... Uh, they, 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 the investigator has shown them something to the left eye, uh, and uh, that gets incorporated in the person's thinking about what's going on, but, uh, but it's not conscious. It's not been presented to the verbal hemisphere. <clears throat> so... Uh, yeah, it's exactly that. It's confabulation. I mean, we're going, we're confabulating all the time. Huh. So when somebody asks me why I did something, uh, if it's a psychologist, I say, well, you know, let, bear in mind who I am. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote, you know, all those articles about uh, uh, unconscious reasoning. So I, I don't really know why I did what I did, but I'll give you a story, uh, which uh, sounds acceptable to me. And <laughs> Will to you. Now you you can only do this with psychologists. You can't <laughs> right. You can't just do this with Aunt Maud, who will think you've finally lost it. Um, so, uh, but we can put the unconscious to to doing more work than it than it does. And uh, if you, but you have to give it some material to work over. Hmm. So I, I use. My teaching technique, my seminar teaching technique, is I hand out thought questions one week for, and that'll be the you know, what we'll focus on in the seminar next week. And my joke about that is, uh, this is simple, somewhat like the thought questions you may have seen in other classes, uh, with the difference being that I expect you to have thought about these questions. Uh, now. If I sit down just before class and write the thoughts questions out, they're not going to be very good, and the class right. is not going to be great. But if I just sit down for 10 minutes and say, well, what are the main points I want this material to make, and what would I do if somebody raises a you know, particular point, how, how would I deflect the discussion in that direction, and so on, I don't have to think for long, but then... You know, several days later, without having consciously thought about the thought questions at all, I sit down and, and start taking the thought questions by dictation. <laughs> it just they start flowing out of my bed. Right. And it turns out that if you uh, ask highly creative people, I mean, the great people, uh, Poincaré, the mathematician, uh, Amy Lowell, uh, the great uh, poet, uh, if you ask them, you know, how did you come up with that? They're, they 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 say thing. Well, Poincaré says, well, I put my foot on the. I was on vacation. I wasn't thinking about work at all. And at the moment, I put my foot on the step of the bus. It occurred to me that the functions I needed to solve this problem were the very Fuchsian functions that I had used to solve another problem years ago. Hmm. Amy Lowell says, you know, I I was in a art museum, and I saw a sculpture of bronze horses, and I thought, you know, that might be an interesting topic uh, for, a, um, for a poem someday. 
months later, she sits down, and as she says, the poem was there, <laughs> without having thought about it consciously in that period of time. The point being, if you prime the unconscious with something, it'll still it'll go off doing work, including at night. I have a friend who said, you know, uh, I'm working on calculus homework problems, you know, I get to problem three, and it's not, I can't figure it out, and work for 30 minutes, nothing's happening, so he just goes to sleep. And often it's not he wakes up, it's oh, that's a bathtub problem, that's all that is. Uh, Amazing. So a lot of the unconscious work, uh, conveniently enough, gets done while we're asleep. Huh. That, that's absolutely fascinating. We've been speaking with Professor Richard Nisbet of the University of Michigan. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure to check out any of the previous 400 uh, interviews we've conducted. You can find those at iTunes or Spotify or or your favorite podcast uh, source. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Sign up for my daily reads at com. Check out my regular column at bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps me do these each week. Uh, Mohammed is my audio engineer. Paris Wald is my producer. Atika Valbron is our project manager. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.